This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. And we are really in strange times right now, as you know, also incredibly dangerous times. This land of liberty in which we live is under attack, both philosophically and politically. And now when you look out on the streets, we're even physically under attack by believers in identity politics. Now, they complain about things like white supremacy and systemic racism and victimhood. They want racial justice, so they say, and equality. But our laws and our founding documents already uphold justice and equality quality for all Americans. So the question becomes, what is their beef? Well, what we're seeing with greater clarity every single day is the end game of these activists, and that is to destroy America as we know it. How did we get here? What were the philosophies and the people who were really driving this movement long ago? And is there really a way out? These are really important questions right now. We're going to get some answers from Mike Gonzalez. He is senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. Great to have you with us, Mike. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Janet, it's my pleasure to be on with you and with your listeners. Thank you. You know, I think a lot of Americans and and really a lot of recent immigrants to America have been asking this really vital question, why would you want to destroy America? I mean, this is the land that has been such a beacon of hope and freedom and opportunity for people of all races and ethnicities. What is your take on that? Why would anybody want to destroy America? Uh, because uh, they are Marxists, and I do mean that. They are Marxists. They don't like what they see here. They want to change it, but you're absolutely right. Your presentation was spot on. This is a, 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 a country, a republic, with a historic levels of liberty and prosperity, so much so that it has attracted a million immigrants and counting from 1850 to the present, and that attraction continues. There's a very long line of people out the door waiting to get in from all countries in the world, and there's no line of people waiting to get out. Now, to, 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 if you're a Marxist ideologue, you look at this, and it's not a dream. It's not the American dream. It's a, it's a dystopian nightmare, yeah. one that is, that is structurally and systemically and, 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 and uh, institutionally racist, so, so you set out to destroy all the structures and institutions and the system, which is a word for the way everything works. The reason why I titled my book The Plot to Change America, it's not because there are meetings in a basement every Thursday night. <laughs> it's because they're all reading the same texts. This follows a, a cultural Marxist program that began in the 1920s and 30s. One of these, is, one of these blueprints is critical theory. Critical theory is taught at all levels at a university. This critical legal theory, which is the rage at all the, at the law schools, this, this critical race theory, which is taught in all our schools, this critical studies and race studies, black studies, Hispanic studies, and so on. 
so that is what I try set out to do in my book. I want to expose this for what it is, who did it, why, and what we can do about it. Well, right. One of the key points I think that people need to understand is this myth that goes around is that this is all just a grassroots movement. You know, these people all spontaneously came forward and recognized what a structurally racist country America is. But as you say, this goes all the way back to the 20s and 30s, also to the 60s. This was interesting because you said that many of the people who were pushing identity politics just a, you know, a few decades ago really had a motivation that Americans were too content. What, what was the deal with the 60s and how the 60s had an impact on what we're seeing now? Right. So if you can take a brief moment to say that it goes back to the 20s and Antonio Gramsci, an Italian communist leader, who's sitting in prison, in a fascist prison, is beginning to, to think, well, Marx and Engels promised that there was going to be revolutions by the working class, but the workers are now revolting. They've only revolted in one place, Russia, in 1917. There's no revolt in Germany or, or Italy. Or, they all fail. There are no German, there's no German Soviet. So he believes, he comes up with a theory of cultural hegemony. The worker has become his own oppressor by buying into the structures of the oppressed, of the oppressor. Uh, he, he's bought into the family, he's bought into the idea of the nation state, he's bought into religion, he's bought into the economic system. So what these communists, these Marxists, who become cultural Marxists, they move away from economics and become cultural Marxists, they say, we must raise the consciousness of the worker. He's got false consciousness, we must put him through consciousness-raising struggle sessions and change his mind about all these things. All the things you're seeing today, all of the anti-racism training, quote-unquote, Robin D'Angelo, the anti-racism consultant who just met with 184 members of Congress, this is very dangerous, she's doing the same thing, wow. but she's doing it in an air-conditioned office. <laughs> she has, she's on record as despising capitalism. She thinks capitalism equals racism, racism equals capitalism. It's all false, of course, Janet, you know that. Right. Um, and, and, but it can be, it can take place in an office, in a conference room in the Fortune, five, in the Fortune 500 company, or it can take place in Maoist China, or in its logical conclusion, Pol Pot's Cambodia, where people were, were, were put through harrowing re-education camps. But it's the same idea. It's all part of the same family. Yeah, you're right about that. But it's an elitist movement. It's a top-down movement rather than a grassroots movement, which is what many people believe. Completely. This, there was no howling cry in the 1960s for any of this. When the Ford Foundation gave a lot of money to UCLA researchers, sent them to the Southwest to canvas Mexican-Americans. Yeah. They spent a lot of, I think it was 600, over $600, which back then was a lot of money. They came back and they were horrified because what they found from Mexican-Americans was that they did not see themselves as victims. They did not see themselves as members of minorities. They, they knew they faced discrimination, but they thought they could resolve their own problems, overcome discrimination through individual agency. They did not see themselves as members of a collectivist group. However, the organizers, Sololinsky, Herbert Marcuse, and all the others, they were interested in collectivist ideology. They were interested in creating a collective identity. So they create Hispanics, which is created after they put pressure on the, on the government in an office in OMB, in uh, the Office of Management and Budget, hmm. in 1977 with policy directive number 15, and it is introduced in the census in 1980, the same with Asian Americans. All the identities that we know today, 
right? Yeah. Identity politics is just a division of America into groups based, you know, based on, on race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, and so forth. Anything that confers a sense of victimhood. Yeah. But that victimhood must be instilled. They must be instilled with grievances. We see the results today in Portland, Seattle, and so forth. Oh, we do. So, for example, another thing you mentioned in the book is that the term Asian Americans started out in 1966, and this was the brainchild of, surprise, surprise, a radical Marxist student. So that goes right along with what we've already talked about, the roots of this entire identity politics movement is Marxism. Absolutely. And you talk to, I have many Chinese-American friends. Most of the Chinese-Americans have immigrated 1965 on, right? They are either first or second generation. First being the immigrant, second is the child of the immigrant. They're horrified by this because they suffered this under Mao. On their Mao, you had the red, the five red categories and the five black categories. Nothing to do with what you had done, had everything to do with your background. They come here, they strive really hard for the children to go to a good school, and all of a sudden, they get get dinged. They, They, you know, the children do too well, they have demonstrated that through sheer effort and, and hard work, they can get into good schools, and yet they're held back. And they're saying to me, but we came here to get away from categories. Yeah, exactly. And here they are right in the middle of it, and they already know what that, you know, what happens when you actually do that and you balkanize people. It causes dissension and it causes violence like we're seeing right now. The sad part is these elites, like, like the Ford Foundation, George Bundy, who was not a bad person. He was, the head, he was, you know, Kennedy's national security advisor. He gets handed the keys to the Ford Foundation in 1966. He panics over the, the race riots that he sees, and he comes up with this theory of temporary balkanization. We're going to need temporary separatism. We're going to, to be in order for people to, to, to have their culture and be proud of the culture, and then we have the whole thing put together again. It hasn't worked out that way. It has become permanent. Yeah. He, he writes a very influential essay in 1977, which is quoted in the Bakke decision, borrowed. A lot of the ideas were borrowed by Blackman's, you know, in, the, in, in, in Judge Justice Blackman's uh, um, concurrent opinion. Hang on just a moment. We do need to pause for a quick break. Mike Gonzalez, The Plot to Change America. We'll be back talking about it here on Janet Mefford today after this. If you could provide God's word to a Bible-less believer in Asia, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ is found lacking, we're urged to help meet their need. These Christians live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of the gospel, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's word, and your gift today lets them know they're remembered. For only $5, believers like Hyo in China and Miriam in Nepal will receive a Bible, be discipled in their new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. Listeners, we're grateful you've generously sent Bibles to more than 2,000 Christians in Asia. Please help us send more with Bible League International. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. 
Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, it is really obvious that identity politics is dividing our land of the free. But for many Americans, the question of how we got here remains a bit of a mystery. And it is cleared up in this new book by Mike Gonzalez, my guest, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of The Plot to Change America. We were talking about some of these special interest groups and how they were created. Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans, groups like MENA, you know, the Middle East, North Africa, all these designations on different ethnicities and the Marxist roots of all all of this, Mike, and and this is something that you said right before the break. It has been really discouraging, especially for Asian immigrants who said, "I thought I came over here from China to get away from this kind of stuff." Yeah, that, in a way, they it, it, they are complete victims of, of identity politics. It is very uh, hopeful that you have one of the so-called minority groups, come, you know, starting to say, "Hang on." This is not working. This is this is what we had in Maoist China. Yeah. So why are you know they, they, you, I met with them? They're really patriotic Americans. They're figuring out the system. Oftentimes they don't speak English well, but they meet. They understand how the government works. They they help each other. And I am hopeful that many Chinese Americans are beginning to say, no, this is you know you should not get an advantage for being a member of a group or being a member of that group. We should all have equal opportunity and do with that opportunity what we can with our hard work and our talent. Right. Exactly. And then that extended to the feminist movement. And then women had to have a separate interest group. And then it extends now to LGBT people. And now it's all, you know, everybody is put into some kind of subgroup. But as you point out, it's the white heterosexual males who are the evil oppressors. They can never be oppressed, right, in this system? Exactly right. I mean, it's, it's so... Somebody who is, is born and raised in Appalachia, who has incredible, has to be incredible odds, right? That person then, according to this ideology, they have, quote-unquote, white privilege. And, you know, J.D. Vance wrote a really good book about this. He yes. went to Yale. He didn't know what to do. Right. He, he didn't have any of the cultural knowledge. You know, his parents were from Kentucky. He grew up in, 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 in Ohio. And, and the idea that because of who you are, you have a privilege, comfort to you as who you are, and, and it takes no account of your own personal history. Right. It's bizarre. It is. It is. But as long as it radicalizes the masses, then they get it done. And, and even, you know, when you talk about like Cloward Piven and that strategy, that kind of all goes together with what's happened in government, hasn't it, with giving financial benefits. And this all is tied to helping to radicalize different groups in America rather than emphasizing e pluribus unum. How does that all work? 
Well, what I found interesting is his essay by Piven and his wife, I think it's Francis Fox Piven, who they say, you know, again, what we have been discussing, the American worker has never really risen because he's after his own self-interest and he's his own self-interest, individual agency, pulling himself up by his bootstraps. But then she writes... But with the involvement of money, she's looking at the great society. She's looking at all the money that Johnson is spending. And she's saying, this is going to be different. This changes everything. This amount of money will you know, incentivize people to adhere to, to, to these identities and to support the things that we want to do. And obviously, they want to change the country. You know, right. they, they, they're very clear about what they want to do in the late 60s. Right, they were. Now, here's the thing that also comes to mind is the profitability of the grievance industry. I mean, you you can think of any number of activists who've been pushing these kinds of ideas for decades now, and they really have a vested interest in not solving the problem, don't they? I mean, how much does money play into the advancement of these ideas? Well, when when you have a system, a victimhood culture, in which you derive your dignity, your pride, your claim for attention and reward and compensatory justice on the amount of victimhood that you, that you can lay claim to, you have zero interest in solving your victimhood. Right. right? It's it, it a really perverse incentive. It puts victimhood on a hamster wheel. It never ends. The people, as you said, this is why it's an elite project, the people who work for the affinity, the ethnic affinity organizations or the identity affinity organizations, they make a really good living. You know, Robin D'Angelo, the, the, the anti-racism consultant, she earns $15,000 for a two-hour lecture. Wow. That's, that's a lot of privilege. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's some privilege right there. Well, that's okay, because she's off the hook, right? Because, I mean, when you're talking about, you know, going and doing this kind of work, that's, that's justice that's fighting for justice, except it isn't. And when you talk about the dangers to liberty, that concerns me even more, because when you have, as you point out, diversity of race is kind of the way you're navigating everything, then you can't have diversity of views anymore, right? So then you get into things like dissent. You can't dissent from this narrative. I mean, what are your thoughts on that whole you know, ramification, the ramifications of identity politics in terms of suppressing speech? Well, uh, a couple of things. The first one is, absolutely. If, if you know, professing that you, what you want to have is a diversity, in a, 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 an ethnic diversity or in a, an identity, because no longer ethnicity, right? It's an identity for many things, gay Americans, you know, people who think they're another uh, sex. Um, if what you want to have in every locale, whether it's a, a, a classroom or an office or a courtroom, is a, 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 an equal representation of their numbers in society, and you say that is a requirement for working here, you must love this kind of identity diversity, then what you lose right away is view diversity. Yeah. Because you say, no, no, they, we, should, we should judge people by their talent and, and, and what's in their heart. We should hire, and we end up hiring 100% Chinese Americans, or 100% Black Americans, or 100% Cuban Americans. That's okay, as long as we're hiring according to 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 you know the, the punctuality, the, the their hard work, what's in their heart, their honesty, and so forth. Yeah. So you lose viewpoint diversity right away. The other thing is, I think you're getting more at that, is cancel culture. Yeah. This is Herbert Marcuse, the guru of many of these things, wrote in 1965 an essay called Repressive Tolerance. It's a contradiction in terms, and he meant it that way. <laughs> According to Marcuse, we could only allow liberal views, leftist views. Hmm. Any conservative view would have to be 
ran out of the marketplace of ideas, suppressed, made illegal. That's what he called the repressive tolerance. What we see in today is the implementation of this. And I go through it in one of the chapters in my book, The Plot to Change America, because you have to understand, Americans have to, be, have to understand what has happened, who has done it, and why, before they become vocal and we can do something about it. Totally right. So we don't necessarily have to accept some of these words that they're putting on us, privilege and supremacy and even people of color. But how do you change that, Mike? Because people are so scared to fight back. It seems the, the best way to shut somebody up is you call them a racist and then they get fired and that's the end of them. But how do you get people to have the courage to say, we're not accepting this kind of narrative because we know it's not true? People are racist. People, people are, are scared. People are scared. They tell me they're scared. Polls show that they're scared. Yep. <clears throat> they're scared to come out and, and, and talk about, you know, and they're scared to push back. A couple of things about this. You know, it's okay to put up your hand and say, hang on, why, to the head of HR, why are you asking me to put a sign on my desk that says I am an ally? <laughs> are, are, are we at war? What am I an ally of? <laughs> right. right. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk this through. It's okay to do that. We must draw strength from the fact that in 1776, a handful of colonists set out to defeat the largest military empire in the world and, and succeeded in doing so. And that in, in the Soviet Union, in Eastern Europe, today in Cuba, in China, there are people who say no. They are courageous. They stand up for their rights and they say no we can draw inspiration from that courage. Okay. I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. You know, I think sometimes what we're dealing with in the United States is a cognitive dissonance. As I've said for a number of years, what, what the problem is with a lot of Americans is they've never seen a revolution up close. I mean, if you talk to somebody from the former Soviet bloc, they're on to a lot of this stuff. Americans, not so much, especially the younger they are and the less interaction they've had with history and the history of the Cold War. A lot of these younger kids, they, they, they don't know anything about the Cold War. They weren't even alive during the Cold War. So wh what about that angle? Well, I, I think that it, it's a problem because they're not being taught in schools. So I know that what, a great place to be vocal in is, uh, you know, boards of ed meetings. Go to your board of education when they have a public meeting. I do. Good. My wife doesn't like it because I raise my hand and I become a pest. <laughs> But you have to push back. Yeah, you do. You do have to push back. Also, what's a little disconcerting is when you talk about the fact that if we can't get rid of identity politics, the alternative might be corporatism. Now, what would that look like, Mike? Well, I don't think we, I don't think we say that. I don't think we say we, we can't get rid of identity politics. Our foundational document which we, we really must hold fast to, says we're all created equal. Right. You know, the, the racial preferences are unconstitutional. I believe that affirmative action is going to be found unconstitutional very soon. Good. Uh, the next time it comes to the Supreme Court. I, I, because, because, you know, it was started temporarily, but, like George Bundy said, in 1977 with Bakke decision, and then with the Bollinger decision, I think it's 2003, Senator O'Connor said, we've had this for 25 years, we're going to okay it, but this, could only, this cannot, can only go on another 25 years. That's coming up in eight years. But even before that, I think that this is going to be found to be. So I don't think we accept that this will remain. Let me tell you why it doesn't work, I think, and why we should, you should be hopeful. You know, Marxism relies on, on the uh, supremely vain 
conceit that it can change human nature. Human nature is unchangeable. If you read the Bible, you read about Abraham and Sarah and Moses, they're human beings like you and me. They're, They're very recognizable. Human nature is unchanging. You know, freedom works with the opposite. When that happens, when they cannot change human nature, that's why Marxism always must rely on on, on terror and coercion, right? Marxism understands that it is through free will that we can accomplish self-preservation, that we need free will. It, It understands human nature. It understands that we have a desire for virtue and that we must balance that with self-interest. And, and, and that is why our system works better. I don't yep. think Americans are going to put up with coercion. This I, is why I say put up your hand, push back. I love it. Great, great, great stuff. Mike Gonzalez, The Plot to Change America. Check out heritage.org slash the plot. Thanks so much, Mike. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians in Asia. $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today, and now here's Janet. Welcome back. The Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that states could decide whether or not they wanted to expand Medicaid rather than be forced to do so under Obamacare. And now outlets like Yahoo are bemoaning the coverage gap that millions are experiencing after touting Obamacare as the be-all, end-all of health care coverage options. Now, what's more, as the Trump administration asked the Supreme Court last month, they want to overturn Obamacare. And the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center is noting that higher-income households would reap significant tax benefits, saving an estimated 35 to $40 billion in taxes annually if that happened. Now, the bottom line in all of this, as always, is saving money, getting your bills paid, and having choices. And that's why so many Americans have chosen healthcare sharing. We're going to get some thoughts now on this from Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Always good to have you here, Matt. How are you? Janet, always glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, what are your thoughts? Looking back on the last several years, what are your thoughts on how Obamacare has really changed the health, you know, the health landscape for Americans in terms of how they get their coverage? Well, in a way that people were, <laughs> if you don't want to say uh, there were any kind of ill intents uh, to be had there, uh, it really was at least desired to, to bring about some sort of mechanism of control to take care of the cost issue of health care uh, and increase the access. But unfortunately, what we have seen to date is that the cost curve for health care has gone pretty much up through the roof. Yeah. Uh, some 20% of costs have risen uh, by that 20%. And so those costs have risen, and a lot of people are starting to see those access uh, of health care be taken away because of uh, health care consolidation, because of uh, removal of independent uh, hospitals. Uh, so a lot of people are starting to see a change in health care, and uh, you can fit and try and go into a 
top-down, one-size-fits-all model, or you can still (laughs) exercise your freedom of choice and find those ways that are actually responsive to the patient rather than the the bureaucrats. Exactly. And healthcare sharing and Liberty Health Share is definitely one of them. Well, right. Now, when you talk about the cost curve going through the roof, for a lot of Americans who, who don't follow all of these developments that have occurred since the advent of Obamacare very closely, why is that? If we had this line that we want to get more access and we want to bring down costs, why is it that you've seen the opposite occur? What's the reason for that? Well, it really does stem from a desire to plan uh, what these issues uh, might be. And for a top-down model, it is really hard to try and take in all of the factors that might go into one sector of the economy, that being healthcare. So you're never going to have a fully well-planned central way of taking care of those costs and access. And what you really need to do is allow the market, the individuals within a market and the providers within a market to make those decisions themselves, to come to those decisions that make things more affordable, more accessible, and in the end, more free. So that is the primary reason why we see those things, and that's with a model with Liberty HealthShare, what we see. We've almost democratized. We've given that power back to the patient so that individuals can take control over their health care rather than having some centralized bureaucratic system that tries to control and maintain health care in regards to whatever they may seem fit. This is a true removal of power and giving that power back to the patient. Well, that's the thing, because I'm sure you hear from people who are with Liberty HealthShare all the time. How in the world can you keep your costs down the way you do and still have the ability to let people have their bills covered when it comes time to go to the doctor or go to the hospital? What is it about healthcare sharing ministry that is just more effective in terms of making sure the individual is in control? Well, we release the most powerful cost containment force in healthcare today, and that is the self-private pay patient. Uh, we actually empower individuals to take control over their health care again. They have access of choice. They can visit the doctor or hospital that they want. Uh, they can uh, make decisions based on the uh, actual uh, procedures or prescriptions that they want to get with their, uh, their doctor. So it really does change the methodology by which you approach healthcare. It's not a network uh, where you can only visit so many doctors and hospitals. There, there's not a, a procedural uh, script that uh, doctors have to follow. Uh, it really is changing that model and unleashing the person so that they are not only free to make those choices, but also responsible. They feel and they see the responsibility of their choices within healthcare, and that changes your absolute absolute approach to health care. So no longer are you in an entitlement mentality where you're saying, well, I paid in my premium and I should just get whatever's coming to me. You're actually engaged with your health care again. You're asking what the prices are. You're asking what the best methodology is to attack a particular issue is. Your doctor is your coach again, rather than a de facto bureaucrat for third-party payment systems. So we changed that whole model up on its head, empowered the 
individual and surrounded them with a community willing and able and ready to support them whenever they have their time of need. So that is the real reason why we're able to really attack this in a ground-up way. We're changing the entire model, empowering individuals with a community of people behind them, allowing them the freedom and right to make their choices in healthcare again. Well, right. And and one of the things that has always impressed me about Liberty HealthShare is the personal aspect of it. The fact that you can pray for other people, that you can send each other messages, encourage people, pray for people, those sorts of things. How much does that aspect of Liberty HealthShare appeal to people, would you say? Because that's that's definitely not the way it goes if you're under Obamacare or if you have private uh, you know, health insurance through your company. You're not sending messages of cheer to other insurance holders. <laughs> That's for sure. Not not generally anyway, because you don't have that kind of connection to the other people. No, and frankly, whenever people join Liberty HealthShare, they may hear about that aspect of it, but it's not one of those things that really clicks for people, just because, as you said, the culture is not necessarily there. A lot of people join Liberty HealthShare because it helps them contain their costs, it gives them the freedom of choice, but then they start to realize, yeah, there is a community here. There are people that are caring about me, and the money that I receive for my health care needs is not coming from some pot of money somewhere, some bureaucratic black hole. This is coming from other individuals. This is coming from you and from me and from people gathering together to help each other in times of need. This is not a bureaucratic system. This is not a third party process. This is healthcare sharing where a community comes together not only to help you financially, but emotionally and spiritually as well. Whenever you're dealing with an issue in your life and you need help and you turn to your neighbors, your friends or family, they're not only there to offer you support financially or with what you need, they're there to pat you on the back, to give you a hug, to put an arm around your shoulder, to let you know it's going to be okay and we're here to help you. That's what we have in Liberty HealthShare. Basically, we've taken that spirit and that model and made that a system by which everyone benefits. So while people join for Liberty HealthShare with many different reasons, they find out the community is there and you can go to sleep at night knowing you're a part of something real. Yeah, it's libertyhealthshare.org. You can check out the websites. But, you know, Matt, when you're talking about people making the switch from private insurance to Liberty HealthShare, is it complicated to make that switch when you're talking about the steps that are required to join people, ask things about health screenings and pre-existing conditions and those sorts of things? But how simple is it to make the switch? Oh, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, we, we try to put people through the ringer and absolutely upend their lives. No, I'm kidding. Absolutely <laughs> kidding. No, it's absolutely easy. Very simple. Going to uh, libertyhealthshare.org, you just fill out an application. We'll be back with, in touch with you between 24 to 72 hours. Uh, once we're back in touch with you, we send you your information that you need, and then you're a member for, with Liberty Health Share. It really does. Uh, it's a very simple process. You're not having to go visit doctors or nurses or have somebody come to your house to take blood pressure or blood from your body uh, or checking up on you. No, it's a very simple, very easy process. We want it to be that way. We don't want to be invasive. We want to be a community. Very good. Well, you can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org. Matt Bellis with us. Thanks so much, Matt. Good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. All right, you bet. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this.
This is the story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on an ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. It's a fact. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her baby. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. One ultrasound costs just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. Would you please consider helping us to support Preborn and the cause for life? To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, I was very disheartened and sad to see the reports about the death of Herman Cain, who was the one-time candidate or would-be candidate for president back in 2012. And I have to just say on a personal note how much I appreciated him because I had interviewed him a number of times. But back in 2011, I was a rather newbie to the nationally syndicated talk show scene. And I had set up an interview with Herman Cain after what was to be the Florida straw poll. And surprisingly, he won it. And it was a real dark horse situation. And he came out of it and he had won. And I thought, well, sometimes what happens in talk radio is if somebody becomes a huge national superstar, the schedulers for those people for talk shows will rearrange the schedules and cancel certain ones to get on bigger shows or more, you know, get on CNN or whatever it is. And I remember Herman Cain did not cancel on me. And I ended up getting that interview right after it happened. And it was just wonderful. And it was wonderful to talk to him. He was very gracious. He was very much involved in the Tea Party, a conservative, successful businessman, and really talked a lot about the fact that the, he was a non-politician. And I remember him saying that. It, you know, it was his appeal as a non-politician that really was what propelled him to be able to make the gains that he did with voters. Now, of course, he didn't end up being the nominee, but really fine gentleman. And I, of course, was looking at all of these news reports. He had coronavirus. He was 74 years old. He also had gone through a bout of stage four colon cancer, I think liver cancer as well, which is amazing that he survived that. And he had. But I thought, I'm looking at all of these social media posts about Herman Cain, and you know you can just predict exactly what they're going to start saying. He was at the Trump rally. He caught coronavirus at the Trump rally. 
And it must be the case that Trump is responsible in some way for Kane's death and CCC. And they, you know, use his tragic death as some sort of political scoring opportunity. So let's listen to a couple of different news coverage elements here on the death of Herman Kane. Let's go first to Fox News reporter John Roberts. This is cut one. And the last time that I saw Herman Cain was at President Trump's rally in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. He waved as uh, he went by. And it was not long after that, June the 29th, that he was diagnosed with coronavirus and uh, went to an Atlanta hospital. Uh, A month after being diagnosed, he remained on a ventilator, although people who were close to him were saying that it appeared as though uh, he might be getting better. Uh, The the word that went out was that his organs were strong, that they were trying to heal his lungs with an infusion of oxygen through a ventilator. But but don't forget, uh, Herman Cain did have some underlying conditions uh, back in 2006. He had colon cancer, which had spread to his liver. He was also 74 years old, Sandra, which put him right at sort of at the apex of that high risk group of people who sometimes do so badly uh, with coronavirus. We also know that African-Americans suffer severe coronavirus disease at a higher percentage than other people do as well. Now, I think that that was a responsible way to report it because obviously the reporters at Fox know exactly what I just said to you. And that is how most of the mainstream media would report on Herman Cain's death as if the Trump rally killed him and and take all of those other factors out of the equation. Now, they didn't completely do that with every media outlet. And granted, I haven't heard what every single media outlet reported. I do think it was interesting, though, how you hear a very different angle on this same news story from Kelly O'Donnell, the NBC News White House correspondent. This is what her report was. Cut to. Herman Cain is someone who has been so prominent in the business and political world over many years. And it is uh, certainly a terrible loss for his family and his staff. And of course, it stands out that he has been uh, a friend to the president and was in attendance and was photographed at the Tulsa rally, which was the last rally the president held and one that was happening in what was at that time a COVID hotspot. Herman Cain was photographed not wearing a mask, sitting in close proximity to others. Of course, we don't have an ability to draw a line from that event to his diagnosis. That's just some of the background of what has happened here. Well, then why mention it? Why mention it? Because people are talking about it. I'm not saying that you can't mention it at all. But do you see what she really was doing? He was a friend of the president. He went to the rally. He didn't wear a mask. It was a COVID hotspot. Now, we're not saying that he contracted the virus at the rally. Well, right. But you've put everything in place to make people believe the rally was the reason that he caught COVID-19. And you don't know that. So this is how the media will twist things or try to slant things so readers and or listeners will come away with the impression that these activists want you to come away with. What would you come away with if you were just an average American who didn't really know anything about the ins and outs of the left? You'd say, oh, well, I guess he caught it COVID-19 at the rally and he didn't wear a mask. You know, might I just reiterate, I'm looking at the CDC website from May 2020, And they have the information here, which we've reported on the show before. Let me just read you one sentence. Although mechanistic studies support the potential effect of hand hygiene or face masks, evidence from 14 randomized controlled trials of these measures did not support a substantial effect 
on transmission of laboratory-confirmed influenza. We similarly found limited evidence on the effectiveness of improved hygiene and environmental cleaning. That's the CDC. But what do we have right now? Oh, if you didn't wear a mask, that's why you got it. The masks don't work. That's according to the CDC. But we're all walking around like fools in, in the height of summer thinking, oh, well, I better do this to make sure I don't get COVID or spread COVID. What about Louis Gohmert, Representative Louis Gohmert, who has now come down with coronavirus? The first thing that people started spreading around about him was the fact that he got COVID-19 because he didn't wear a mask. And then the Washington Examiner came out with a piece really going into the truth about it, which is that he did wear a mask. He was wearing a mask. And when he was at the Judiciary Committee hearing just a few days ago, he was also wearing a mask. It says here, Democrats and some media outlets accused Gohmert of refusing to wear a mask in the Capitol and at the Judiciary Committee hearing with Bill Barr. Gohmert wore a mask, except when he was speaking, a practice followed by other lawmakers. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. A news outlet tweeted incorrectly that Gomert was chastised by Jerry Nadler for not wearing a mask in the hearing room. <laughs> but Gomert was not even sitting on the dais when Nadler made the criticism. And so his spokesman wrote, what a liar you are. This was to Politico, which accused Gomert of attending the hearing unmasked. And the rep said he was not, meaning Gomert, he was not admonished for not wearing a mask because he wore a mask at the hearing unless he was speaking and has been wearing one, which ensures that you touch things and adjust the mask and whatever you might have touched stays on the mask to infect you. That's exactly right. And that's what Louis Gomert came out and said later. That in fact, maybe that was how I contracted it because you have to move that thing up and down to speak. And when you do that, you run the risk of having bacteria and other sorts of you know, germs on your mask then spread around your face. He's right. And now, by the way, he's going to take hydroxychloroquine, the Texas representative, Louis Gohmert. So God bless him. I'm glad he's doing that. And by the way, did you hear Ohio had was taking a stance and saying, oh, no, you're not going to be allowed to... Uh, prescribe hydroxychloroquine. These people are becoming positively Nazi-esque about this hydroxychloroquine thing and these doctors who had this press conference and YouTube is suppressing this and nobody can watch it and people are going to have to save it on other sites. Now you have the... uh, the FDA chief coming out and saying hydroxychloroquine is a decision between doctor and patient. And I guess I guess that Ohio is now backing off a little bit. But in the midst of all this, what is Dr. Fauci doing? You know, Dr. Fauci, who threw out the pitch at the Washington Nationals game, terrible pitch, but that's beside the point. And then he was photographed sitting between two people in the stands with his mask on his chin. This is the great white hope of coronavirus advice, except now he's saying Americans should consider wearing goggles or a face shield in order to prevent spreading or catching COVID-19. I'm just curious if this guy actually reads the CDC website. He is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. You would think he's up to speed on the science on this. But in fact, he was quoted via ABC News as saying, you have mucosa in the nose, mucosa in the mouth, but you also have mucosa in the eye. Theoretically, you should protect all the mucosal surfaces. So if you have goggles or an eye shield, you should use it. That's fantastic. Why don't we all don hazmat suits? And then we'll all be totally, totally, totally protected from a virus from which 7 or 8 or 9% of Americans recover. It's good. We all need to be the boy in the bubble and then we'll be safe. I don't know. These are weird times and there's not very much consistency on this issue of what is actual science and what is not. 
But in any case, we pray for Texas Representative Louis Gomer that he will get well soon and pray for the family of Herman Cain and the loss that they're suffering. It is a terrible thing when somebody does die of COVID-19, but we have to go by science and truth when we're reporting on these things and not just politics. This hour of Janet Meffer today has been brought to you by Bible League International. Please help us send more Bibles to needy Christians in Asia. For $5, you can send one Bible. The number to call, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thank you so much. 